Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that it is possible that there will be someone here tonight that may hear your message for the last time. And so, Father in heaven, we pray that each and every one of us would weigh your words wisely. In Christ's name, amen. On April 15th of this year, a South Korean passenger ship left port near the city of Seoul for a 250-mile voyage to an island resort. On board were 476 passengers, 325 of them were high school students. Also on board was cargo that exceeded the ship's weight capacity by three times. After traveling for about 12 hours and being just an hour and a half away from its destination, the ship made an unusual 45-degree right turn. And the rest you know. You've seen the video. You've seen the pictures. It took almost two hours for this 6,800-ton vessel to completely capsize. Inside, the passengers were told to gather in small rooms and to wait for help that would never come. Ironically, one of the first people to abandon ship was its captain. He now is facing a trial, and he's being charged with murder through neglect. If found guilty, he can face the death penalty. The fallout continued two days after the sinking when the rescued group leader of these 325 students committed suicide. The reason? He couldn't bear the pain of living when so many under his care had died. Disaster and tragedy are splashed across the headlines all over the world. And bad news becomes so pervasive that it shocks our senses. When tragedy strikes thousands of miles from where we are, we sometimes feel like we're just observers to the pain because that distance becomes the buffer that disconnects us from feeling the pain and the trauma of other people. But when tragedy hits close to home, when we feel the pain and the agony of unexpected calamity, our natural human instinct is to search for answers. And we ask the question, why? Why do the innocent suffer? Why do bad things happen to decent and respectable people? Why are the young and the vulnerable struck down by tragedy? We just want to know why. I'd like to examine five verses tonight that show us that sometimes, 
The question why is the wrong question and the wrong issue. Let's turn to Luke chapter 13. First five verses, Luke 13. The Bible says in verse number one, there were present at that season, and the word season can be translated to mean occasion or time. In chapter 12, verse number one sets the scene for that verse. The Bible says this, there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people insomuch that they trod one upon another. The crowd was filled to capacity, just like this. But these people were pushing and pulling and stepping on each other, and they were seizing the moment to experience the power of his message. And Christ was the master of the moment. And when the time was right, he started his sermon. And the theme at the end of chapter 12 is judgment. And the basic teaching is this. God's day of judgment is coming. It can't be avoided. It can't be stopped. You can't run. You can't hide. Judgment is inevitable. And because of that reality, make it right with God and man. Ultimate doom is just around the corner. So make the right choice and repent because decisions determine destiny. And so that's the context as we look at chapter 13, verse number one. There were present at that season as he taught and preached about the reality of judgment, some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now this was the tragedy that was splashed across the headlines in Jerusalem. This was it. What happened? These Galileans were in the safety of the temple possibly at Passover. And they were participating in the sacrifice. And maybe without warning, and on direct orders from Pilate, his soldiers rushed these Galileans and murdered them in a vicious and gruesome way. The crime scene was so brutal that the Bible uses a phrase like this, their own blood was mixed in with the blood of their own sacrifice. This was barbaric. This was ruthless. These men had no trial, no jury, no defense, no mercy. Why would something like this happen? Why like this? And why would God allow it to happen? And by the way, what was the motive for this murder? The clues are very few, but we do find a possible link in Acts chapter 5, verse number 37. The Bible says there rose up Judas of Galilee in the, day of, in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him. Judas of Galilee. We know at least three things 
about this group based on historical information. First, they rejected the authority of Rome. Secondly, they refused to pay taxes. And lastly, they launched revolts against the Roman government. And it may be that these Galileans were aligned with his insurgency. And it may be that Pilate brought swift retribution on these Galileans because of their anti-Roman campaign. That's possible. But despite that, this was needless. This was senseless. On April 24th of this year, three doctors working in a hospital in Afghanistan were shot and killed by a guard who was assigned to protect the hospital. Two of these doctors were a father and son team who had a passion to help the Afghan people. And they were murdered in cold blood. Why would that happen? Why would God allow it to happen? That's the question. Two shocking pieces of news clips were released in the aftermath. First, the widow spoke, a widow of one of the doctors, and she made a statement and said, I hold nothing against the Afghan people or even against the shooter himself. I forgive. That was a a shocking statement. And secondly, it was very ironic that the shooter who killed the doctors, after he did that, turned the gun on himself and shot himself. But his life was saved by the colleagues and the friends of the murdered doctors. In our text, the Jewish community was shocked by this atrocity. These Galileans were in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing. They were following the law of God. And this happens? Why? And so they begin the process of rationalizing the reason. The reason of why. In verse number two, And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye... When you analyze this through, does it seem, do you think that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? The only way the Jews could process this tragedy, the only way it made sense was maybe these Galileans deep inside were wicked people. Some Jews had a theology that bad things happened to bad people because God ordained it that way and that's what makes life fair. Now Christ's question in verse number two implies that what they told him in verse number one was that this tragedy somehow fits within the scope of God's judgment. In their minds, This murder was a byproduct of their wickedness. They had it coming. So this murder, in their minds, was a consequence of God's judgment. 
You see, it all fits that way, I guess. It all makes sense to think of it that way. It was just a matter of time, and they had it coming, and they got theirs. In verse number three, I tell you nay. Now, with four words, Christ unravels a false belief system that goes back hundreds of years. Does God rain down supernatural judgment on nations and people because of sin? Does he do that? Does that happen? Is there precedence for that in scripture? Of course, but not always and not in this case. In fact, instant judgment is not God's usual way of working. And we know that because in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 9, the Bible says that God is long-suffering. He is patient. Why? Because he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so the wicked live because of patience motivated by love. So, do you wonder why these Galileans suffered such things? Notice, Christ never answered why. In verse number three, he makes a larger point that far outweighs the curiosity of why. In verse number three, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. The question of why is replaced with a warning, and it goes like this. Be ready to die because you don't know when and you don't know where and you don't know how and it really doesn't matter why but at some point you will leave this life and stand before God for a final reckoning. And in the face of that reality, make the right choice and repent because your decision will determine your destiny. He implies, don't be preoccupied with the complexity and the theology of why certain things happen. The real issue is living a kind of life that is ready to die. A life that can say, even so come, Lord Jesus. And that's the point. Christ's warning in verse number three is profound on a lot of levels. First, it takes you behind the tragic headline of the Galileans and it reveals the rest of the story. The real tragedy was not so much that these Galileans died or even the way they died. The real tragedy was after they died, they perished. That's the real story. Now, the word perished is the very essence of tragedy. And a classic definition would be to be in a state of utter ruin. And what that connotates here is to feel, to experience the devastation of destruction forever without any hope of it ever ending. I can't think of anything worse. 
but it wasn't supposed to be like this. This was not the storybook ending that they imagined for their lives. They had dreams, they had aspirations, but in life, they took the gamble. They hedged their bet. And even though they went through the motions of religion, they lived a life on their own terms and they lost their soul. That's the real tragedy. I read an article about a businessman from Nebraska who, hold, who holds two very undistinguished records in Las Vegas. First, it's estimated that he may have lost up to $204 million in one year of gambling. I think that's pretty bad. Secondly, you can probably guess this, he holds the longest losing streak in Las Vegas history. And anyone who rejects the urgency of repentance tonight makes this man look like a winner. Because you are willing to wager your body, soul, and mind and risk everything for just a moment of living life on your own terms and by your own rules. In Mark chapter 8, verse number 36, Jesus said, what does it profit a man that he gain the whole world but lose his soul? And what that means is it doesn't make any sense to risk everything when the most you can win is nothing. The worst gambler in the world would tell you that's a raw deal. And yet, how many of you are risking everything for nothing. Now the implication of Christ's warning in verse number three is this. Chances are that you will come face to face with the reality of your mortality when you least expect it. And that is a chilling truth. Eventually, the fantasy of security in your life will fade away. Reality at some point will set in. And sometimes it's too late to make the right choice. Tragedy has a way of exposing our storybook endings, the ones we've always imagined for ourselves as being nothing more than fairy tales. And on the basis of these facts in verse number three, Christ is reinforcing the urgency of repentance by confronting us with the brevity and the frailty of life. There might be some of you here tonight who think that your future is so bright that you need to wear shades. Right? You have it all. 
It's all figured out. The future is just an endless possibility, a lot of potential, a lot of things going on in your life. It's time for a reality check tonight. It's time for us to learn what God really says about your life. The Bible says in Job chapter 20, verse number 8, that life is like a dream that flies away. Have you ever had that moment where you woke up and you thought back and you were trying to remember if you had any dream at all? And the moment you try to recollect, it was gone. In a moment, it was gone. And the word picture that that verse paints is that life is like a formless image that fades away when reality sets in. That's how life is. In Job chapter 14, verse number 2, the Bible says that life is like a flower that is clipped away. Imagine a flower, a beautiful, vibrant flower, and in a moment, the color fades, the stem shrivels, and the petals fall. That's how life is. In James chapter 4, verse number 14, the Bible says that life is like a vapor that appears for a moment and then is gone. It is like the morning mist that dissipates. In Psalm chapter 90, verse number 9, the Bible says that life is like a tale that is told. And it passes away like a fleeting thought. That's how life is. What's the point? It's this. Time is not your friend. You are not entitled to a future. God doesn't owe anyone anything. But you have tonight to make it right. This moment is your chance of a lifetime to make the right choice and repent. Because that decision will determine your eternal destiny. Tonight is your moment to say yes to life. Tomorrow is not a reality. Tomorrow is a possibility. But you have tonight. In verse number four, or those 18 upon whom the tower in Solom fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? Now this was one of the most tragic headlines in Jerusalem. Because the victims of this disaster were not Galileans. They were men that dwelt in Jerusalem. And this is a tragedy that hits close to home for them. This was possibly an area of the city where channels were constructed to route a fresh supply of water into the city. And towers were actually built above these channels to observe the water flow, and somehow 
the unthinkable happened. I read an article a while back, and it seems unbelievable, but in northern Italy, a young man was crushed by a crucifix that was built to honor John Paul II. It was 100 feet high. It weighed 1,300 pounds. And it took the life of a 21-year-old young man taking pictures. What does that mean for you? Stay away from statues, right? Keep your distance. No, what that means is that the unbelievable and the unexpected and the unthinkable happen all the time. It happens every day. And the question in verse number four, were these 18 casualties, were they the worst of the worst? Or as the actual translation would say, were they the biggest debtors to God? Christ said, In verse number five, I tell you nay. Of course not. We know that. And we also know this. Calamity and tragedy is a reality of life. It is a consequence of a sin-stained world. And sometimes born-again believers are part of the headline. That happens. I can tell you story after story of how God's supernatural providence and protection kept his own from danger. And they were delivered. But not always. Not always. Sometimes his own are struck by tragedy. I wish I can say that wasn't true. But it is. You know it is. No one is exempt from tragedy. And because of that, the Bible says in verse number five, Jesus said, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And what that means for us is to feel the urgency. Take the initiative and work out the issues in your life so that you can experience the power and the confidence that comes with living a life that is ready to die. Don't settle for less. Don't cheat yourself of the best that life can be. In John chapter 10, verse number 10, Jesus declared the mission statement of the Messiah. He said this, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And being ready to die is the very essence of the abundant life. And that word abundant is very important because it gives you a preview of how life can be when you are ready to die. Because you need to know what you're missing. 
You need to know what you're passing by, what you're leaving behind when you walk out these doors. You need to know you're missing out on a life that is abundant. And now this word does not mean to merely get by in life. It does not mean to merely survive and grin and bear your way through life. That's not it at all. The word implies having a life that thrives by the power of grace, a life that excels and rises above the mediocrity that sin offers. If you really want to live, if you really want to experience life, be ready to die. When you are ready to die, the Bible says, according to Psalm chapter 1, verse number 3, that everything you do in life will prosper. And what that means is that all of God's purposes will be accomplished in your life despite the opposition of the enemy. And that brings a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction that nothing can match when you are ready to die. The implication of John chapter 10, verse number 10, it's tremendous because the heart of the passage means this, that only those who are ready to die can experience the fullness, the exuberance, and the excitement of life at the highest level possible. It's only for them. It's them They go through life making the most of every moment. And they take in the beauty and the energy of life. And at the same time, they are driven by a passion to leave this life and be in the presence of God forever. Being ready to die is to be forgiven. Can you imagine living a life that is free from guilt and shame and rejection, a life that is ruled and preserved by the peace that passes all understanding. Can you imagine that? Being ready to die is to be fearless. Can you imagine what it would be like not to fear? Condemnation, judgment, Death, the future, the past, persecution, opposition, evil, calamity, anything. You see, when you are forgiven, you have the God-given right to fear not. When you are ready to die. Now, in the interest of full disclosure... I need to say that a life that is ready to die is not exempt from pain or struggle or tears. It's not. But you will have the power to push through the storms of life and overcome and shine like a star. And that makes all the difference. Now, this kind of life 
is possible. Through the power of repentance, this life is available. This life was paid by Christ's own blood, offered to you. He embraced the wrath of God for you so that you can embrace a full life. But it seems sometimes that only few fully embrace it. Just a few. Someone wrote, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And the whole point here, learn from your mistakes. Don't wallow in them. Take responsibility for your life. Take ownership of your failures and faults. Acknowledge sin. Confess sin. Repent for sin. Forsake sin. Refuse to merely get by in life. Reject being a victim. Renounce mediocrity. And embrace the fullness of life in Christ and be ready to die. Amen.